it is my great privilege to be able to welcome tonight uh, a dear friend of mine, someone who sort of makes, it's one of these people who make life a little bit more effervescent, a little bit more worth living, Jay Nordinger. He's not only the music critic for The New Criterion, he's a senior editor at National Review. Um, I'm sure all of you here know his writing. He writes not only about music, but about culture, about politics, about history. He's writing a book for a small, but if I, uh, if I do say so myself, distinguished publishing house <laughs> called Encounter Books on the Nobel Peace Prize. It's sure to be a bestseller and a, a, a book that will live through the ages. Um, Jay is really, you know, the, the, the term Renaissance man is overused, and I hate to apply anything overused to Jay, but he really is that. Uh, a remarkably uh, percipient critic, uh, a wonderful human being, the best music critic in English, and I'm, I'm sure in other languages, although I, I don't read music criticism in other languages, so I can't say with <laughs> certainty, but I, I, I'm morally certain that that's, that's the case. And um, he's going to talk to us tonight a, a little bit about the music world. So there is a music world the way there is an art world. Uh, it has its institutions, it has its practices, it has its perversions, it has its glories, its sadnesses. Jay is going to talk to us a little bit about that, and then um, I think he has time to answer a few questions about that, or about anything else you may want to ask him. Jay. Thank you, Rod. Thank you so much. Well, uh, after that introduction, I'm almost afraid to open my mouth, and uh, I appreciate it. How generous, and uh, thank you all for coming, and thank you to Mitzi Perdue, my my favorite Mitzi since Gaynor, <laughs> a singer I grew up with whose recordings I grew up with. And uh, I'm awfully pleased to be associated with the new criterion. I always say that it's part of my continuing education. And uh, it is. Um, I missed a lot when I was in college and graduate school, and some of the things I learned weren't quite right. And so I appreciate the new criterion as, as teacher. Uh, I consider myself more a reader of the magazine than a contributor to it. Uh, I thought I'd uh, start with a couple of local institutions that are also national and international institutions, beginning with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, those are interesting times over there, across the park. I feel I can see it. And um, the Philharmonic is in some flux. One music director is leaving, and another music director is coming in. The fellow who is leaving is Lauren Mazel, um, a brilliant conductor, sometimes eccentric. Uh, sometimes a little bit uh, dull, but even his dullness is interesting somehow. <laughs> He's a formidable musician. He's a big brain, very interesting human being. And uh, I am sometimes wrong, I blush to say. I wasn't very happy when he came to New York to take over the Philharmonic. I thought we weren't trading up from Kurt Mazur. <coughs> Didn't like Mazel's tenure very much in Cleveland, although he did have an, a not very enviable position in that he succeeded George Zell, the great conductor. But Mazel's tenure in New York has turned out to be very interesting, very worthwhile, and often dazzling. Uh, he's being replaced by a man named Alan Gilbert. And uh, I have nothing against the man personally. I don't know him or even much about him. Uh, but uh, when this announcement was made, I made the comment that it was a signal that the New York Philharmonic, strangely enough, had, had decided that it wouldn't be a serious orchestra anymore. It's really one of the great orchestras of history, and its podium is the podium of Toscanini and Mahler and Rudzinski and Barbaroli and um, a lot of people would like to add Bernstein 
And then the three M's, as I call them. <laughs> the three M's being, being Meta and Mazur and Mazel. And here comes Alan Gilbert, um, who has had a so-so career and is a, a competent and workaday uh, conductor. Um, he, may, he may grow, but he is what's known. Uh, he is what the uh, PR people call a good philharmonic story. Um, what does that mean? Uh, it means that uh, his parents played in the orchestra. They were violinists, and one still does, his mother. And he sort of grew up in this orchestra. And uh, he is young by conductor standards. He's uh, in his early 40s or mid-40s, I think, and that's very important to a lot of people. And uh, he is what's known as a minority in that he's half Japanese. That's important to a lot of people. These aren't musical criteria, uh, but they are criteria. And he's a good philharmonic story. And I think that the age thing is particularly saddening. Um, there have been some brilliant young conductors in history. Lauren Mazel was one of them. And I don't even mean his child prodigy years. Uh, he first conducted the New York Philharmonic at age 12. Very unusual to have a Wunderkind who's a conductor. They're instrumentalists. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to name one beyond Lauren Mazel. But I mean in his 20s and 30s. Was a, a, a very, very good and worthwhile and exciting conductor. But usually, in the old days, we were reassured by the sight of, of gray hair or white hair on a podium. It meant experience, it meant wisdom, and it takes a while to be a conductor. It's hard to be a conductor in your teens and your 20s, much harder than being, say, a pianist or a violinist. And it used to be reassuring to have some age and experience. Now there's an almost uh, a, a lust for youth on a podium. And I brought this up with the conductor, the Austrian conductor who is has Lauren Mazel's old post and, and George Zell's old post. He's the music director of the Cleveland Orchestra. He's Austrian, and I did a public interview with him in Salzburg last summer, and I brought up this issue of a desire for youth on the podium. And Velzimus said, it is a sickness of our time, which I thought was exactly right. Um, another quick note about the Philharmonic and this appointment of Alan Gilbert. Uh, the inside story is, I don't know whether this is true, but it's a story that is peddled. Um, they really wanted Riccardo Muti, the Italian stallion, as I sometimes call him, uh, to be music director of the New York Philharmonic. And he said no, but he'd give them a great many weeks. He just didn't want the responsibilities of the music director, the schmoozing, the fundraising, and, and, and so on. And so, in, according to this story, uh, Alan Gilbert was the official music director, but Muti was going to be the big guy. So then, after this, Muti up and accepts the music directorship of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, mm. another big podium. So now we've got, really, Mr. Gilbert. Now, I, I hope he's good, and nothing would, would please me more to say that I was wrong in my disappointment over the naming of him uh, to succeed Lauren Mazel. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but, uh, and I'm not a naive. I know that music is not a pure meritocracy. I know that there are other considerations extra musical considerations. <coughs> Who will put the fannies in the seats? Uh, I am a great respecter of the bottom line. For example, young people. <laughs> you know, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> it was entirely accidental. If it hadn't been for, for, for chuckles, I would never have known. <laughs> so, that's enough on that. Let's move to the Met, to the Metropolitan Opera, uh, where they also have a, a, a time of change. The, uh, the Gelb seasons are kicking in. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, it means that, um, that seasons entirely arranged by the relatively new general manager, Peter Gelb, are beginning. He's been there for maybe three years, three seasons, something like that. But of course, these things are scheduled far in advance, and he's made some casting changes and other decisions. But his seasons 
uh, the seasons that he has planned and ordered and hired, uh, worked up, are, are, are beginning. And uh, there's a certain amount of concern, and uh, I, uh, I, I share a particular concern, and I, I might be said to be a fomenter of this particular concern. There are a great many people, a lot of them critics, a lot of them opera administrators, who are kind of embarrassed about the Met and by the Metropolitan. They're, they're embarrassed. This is a big, grand, traditional opera house where grand opera is produced. It's embarrassing to them. It's not like Europe. Uh, the productions aren't terribly modern. They're not terribly abstract. They're not political. Uh, the productions usually reflect the, the score and the libretto, the story, the whole spirit of the opera which is, is sort of sick, according to, to, to some people. <laughs> so, a lot of people think that the Met is, is fuddy-duddy and retrograde and embarrassing. I'm not one of those people. And I think, even in the name of diversity, there ought to be room for one metropolitan opera where grand opera is staged in the traditional style. Just one opera house. I don't think that all opera houses need to be the same. And I thought of a debate about education um, many years ago, and it made an impression on me. This was a case of VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, and whether it could be all boys. And someone said, you know, we talk about diversity and a gorgeous mosaic and all this, and from sea to shining, shining sea in this great, vast continent, can't there be just one VMI? Just one? And I said, can't there be just one Metropolitan Opera? Uh, and uh, but some, people say, some people say no. And so I, I think we should look out for what I call, just to use a shorthand, the Europeanization of the Metropolitan Opera House. Um, I saw a, a performance of, of uh, Rusalka, the opera by Dvorak, the other night. This is a production by Otto Schenk. And the production looks, feels, smells exactly like Rusalka. And, and, and that is seen as a shame and even an abomination uh, by some people. It's seen as quaint. You know, and it was just a perfect Rusalka. And if you don't like, the, I'd say, if you don't like that production, you don't like the opera. Maybe something else is more to your taste. And I couldn't help contrasting this with the Rusalka I saw last summer in Salzburg. And though I am a critic, I must tell you that I did walk out of this thing. I had had enough to write about, and it was um, well, it wasn't really Rusalka. It, it, it was all the modern obsessions of many of our directors put into this show, and there was. <coughs> really um, vile uh, sexual violence and bad things about religion, that sort of thing. And, and the story was turned on its head. Um, the story didn't mean what, what, what it means. It was a, a reimagining or a warping, an undermining. And one of the great words that these directors and their, their supporters have is uh, subversion. They're proud to subvert something. I think you hear this word in the English departments as well. And uh, I just couldn't help but contrasting uh, I couldn't help contrasting those two uh, uh, versions of Rusalka, where one was true and one was something completely different. And uh, I hope that, um, that the, the Metropolitan Opera withstands these, these pressures, but they're very, very hard to withstand. It's very, very hard to be in the crosshairs of the New York Times. It's an extremely <laughs> powerful institution. Um, it, it, it's hard to be called uh, backward-looking, uh, staid, uh, conservative. Uh, I do think that Joseph Volpe, the, the previous general manager, got a very, very bad rap. I think his years were, were very good. Now, of course, there are really first-rate modern productions. I think of a production uh, at the Met of um, <coughs> Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin. And um, what matters is, is, is taste, judgment, artistry, 
Uh, for these things, there is no substitute. And I might say a final word about the Met uh, before moving on, although there are many other issues involving the Met, such as a certain, um, someone called it a medical terror that's running through uh, singers and a desire to be thin and the need to be thin. And some of them are going under the knife in order to achieve this uh, because they wouldn't have a career otherwise. And look, um, there is a theatrical element to opera, of course, but it is generally, primarily, a musical art. And what counts is the singing. And I know that uh, recently, um, Renee Fleming was in an interview, a joint interview, with the uh, artistic administrator of the Metropolitan Opera. And someone said, if she showed up today, would Montserrat Cavalier have a career at the Met? Would she be hired? Montserrat Cavalier, the Spanish soprano, one of the great singers of our times, uh, not, uh, not a woman um, to be hired by the Eileen Ford Agency, <laughs> uh, a woman of an extremely uh, unusual uh, shape. And Fleming uh, said, I don't know. And she turned to this other woman. And, uh, it's a very, very good question. Final word I'd like to say about the Met is that the Met, we, we who live here, are very lucky that the music director of the Met is James Levine, who's not just a great conductor of today, but a great conductor historically. And it's extremely rare for such a conductor, not that there have been many, to stay in an opera house. The, the, the pattern in the past has been you, you, you start out in an opera house, you learn your trade, you're something of an apprentice, um, you pay your dues, and then you graduate to a symphonic podium. And that's where you spend your remaining decades. Um, James Levine has had several symphonic podiums, but he is a, an opera um, fiend. Uh, he loves the opera, and so he has stayed with it. It's extremely unusual to have a conductor of his quality uh, lead an opera house. It's almost unprecedented. What you do is, once you've served your time in an opera house and have some glorious post, uh, like the Chicago Symphony or the Berlin Philharmonic or the LSO, you dip back into opera just for fun. And George Sell, I mentioned him a couple times tonight, did this at the Metropolitan Opera at least once. And he didn't get along very well with uh, Mr. Bing, as he was called. And they, they, they really clashed. And, and after Zell left, someone said to Bing, some assistant, trying to be sympathetic, oh, that George Zell, he's his own worst enemy. And Bing said, not while I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of other things to say, and I'm going to look at notes to remember what they, to remember what they were. Um, I want to talk, here I am talking, and I want to condemn talking for a second, that is talking from the stage. Uh, this is an epidemic in the music world today constant talking, constant chatter from the stage. Uh, I used to say that the most dread hyphenated word in the English language was concert lecture. You know, but at least you can choose to go to a concert lecture so labeled. Now, it seems there are almost all concert lectures, and you have no choice in the matter. You're a prisoner there, and uh, you're a hostage in the audience, and uh, you've gone to, as I did recently, to hear a string quartet performance. String quartet comes up. Great, you settle in for a musical evening, and the viola starts to talk and lecture and repeat exactly what's in the program notes. <laughs> it, it, it used to be if you were musicologically inclined, and if you are, so help you, you could use you could read the program notes after, before, even during. Uh, no one's going to mark you down. Now they read the program notes from the stage, and I think that that deadens an evening myself. I think music is not speech. The point of music is that it's not speech. I'm talking about pure, especially non-programmatic music. Uh, vocal world, 
that's something else. Um, people, uh, the great buzzword today is outreach. That's now my most dread word. When you hear the word outreach, reach for your gun. <laughs> what it means is they're going to condescend to you, they're going to talk to you, they're going to try to spoon feed you. You know, it's like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He's speaking to this kid, and I see this night after night in concert halls, outreach. And I hear, well, we have to break down the barrier between the musicians and the listeners in the audience. That's another uh, fashionable expression, break down the barrier. One, what's wrong with the barrier? <laughs> what's wrong with the mystery? Two, you used to do it through music. Your communication was in music. And music is, or at least can be, higher than speech. That's the whole point of it. And so I, I very much regret this, but um, uh, people, seem, people seem not to mind. And I think musical evenings, as, as a rule, are spoiled by this by this talking from the from, from the stage, and I'll continue to uh, in, inveigh against it, uh, even if, if people don't listen. <laughs> and I'm just shocked to find myself making <coughs> a fashion note. Uh, far be it from me to notice fashion or care about dress. It's a mere superficiality, oh, or is it? Um, I do hope that's not my phone, although it could be. <laughs> um, it, we used to have concert dress. I'm talking about the musicians. Um, not schlubs like me in the audience. And that has gone by the wayside. We now have what I call proletarian chic. We have these, we have these, these solid black Mao suits, you know, these, 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 these jumpers. And it's the, it's, the new, it's the new uniform. And um, I do think there should be a sense of ceremony about a concert, about a musical evening. Um, there should be a, a, a specialness about it, which includes not talking which includes merely music, and I think that has been lost. I was, uh, or it's diminishing. I was at a voice recital last night uh, uh, by a British baritone named Christopher Maltman, and he sang his program. And by the way, talking, I think, is always permissible at encore time, especially from singers. So he sang this program, and he came out to sing an encore, it turned out to be Schumann's song, and he said, you know, I'm very remiss, ladies and gentlemen, because I haven't opened my mouth to speak to you all evening long, until now. My apologies. And I thought, remiss. But that, that is, it is a current fashion. I want to say a quick word about uh, ticket prices, which are very, very high, and about an aspect that's often overlooked, and that is uh, uh, unions, power of unions, and unreasonable union demands and, and rules. Used to be we had radio broadcasts of orchestra concerts and other concerts, and we had recordings. We don't have them anymore uh, because of prohibitive costs imposed by unions. And Zarin Maida, the executive director of the New York Philharmonic, said to me once, don't think of the New York Philharmonic as an orchestra so much as it, it, it's, it's local six, I think he said. It might, have been, it might have been local eight. And it makes a huge difference. I want to tell you just two quick anecdotes. And I always love to quote the late great political scientist from Berkeley, Aaron Moldovsky, who said, one anecdote is an anecdote. Two anecdotes are data. So, um, <laughs> I'm, in, um, I'm in Zankel Hall listening to a concert of the Young Concert Artists, YCA. And its executive director is Susan Wadsworth, who is the wife of a pretty well-known pianist named uh, Charles, Charlie Wadsworth. And she was talking to the audience. I approve of this kind of talking. It's a family atmosphere. They're financial supporters. And so she's talking on the stage, and they're all familiar with each other. It's like a family. And someone calls out, speak up, Susan, can't hear you. Someone says, use a microphone. And she says, I'm saving YCA $2,500 tonight by not using a microphone. That's what it would have cost, a lousy handheld mic, according <coughs> to union rules. 
And here's something I'm not supposed to say because the official of the great performers at Lincoln Center who told me said that you know, at least it couldn't be attributed to this official, and I will not attribute it, of course. I was at some concert and there was vocal music involved. And I said to her, um, well, why, why aren't you using those lovely super titles that the New York Philharmonic has in Avery Fisher Hall um, so that people don't have to be buried in their, their programs so that they want to see the words? And she said to me, that's what's known in the business as a plug-in, and we can't afford it. In other words, here's a plug, there's the outlet, <laughs> plug it in, we cannot afford it. And um, this has to do, this has to do with ticket prices, and it's one thing to think about uh, when people say that music is out of reach of ordinary people and, and young people and so on. Why is that so? And why do halls have to sell out? Why is it considered some kind of failure when the hall is three quarters full or even half full? Never get to that old thing about the glass. I remember something Gary Grafman uh, told me. He was coming up in New York and he said, and Carnegie Hall was never full except in extraordinary circumstances for, for Horowitz, for Rubenstein, for Heifetz, but for for Serkin, for Milstein, for Piatigorsky, half full. No one thought it was bad. No one thought it was insulting or weird. Just, those are the people who came. Isn't it great that we get to enjoy this? Uh, but now, because of the uh, craziness of costs, uh, people think it's some kind of failure when you're at 90% capacity. Couple more issues before we get to questions, if there are <coughs> some. What will I choose? I have a number left here. I am. Um, I want to say something about music education, education in the schools. I'm talking about primary and secondary schools. Uh, people say that music education is going very, very badly, and therefore uh, we're all worried about the future of the classical music audience. And by the way, on this score, I'd like to quote Charles Rosen, the pianist and lecturer he gives, concert lectures, who says that the death of classical music is its oldest tradition. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 but, but there's some concern about, about this future generation, as there, there always is. This time it might be legitimate, because um, music education in, in the primary schools and secondary schools is suffering. And I remember, and it has to do with care and attention, care about culture. And I remember talking to, I had an interview with Marilyn Horn uh, not long ago, and she said what a scandal it was. We don't have more education, and it's money. schools have no money, they're strapped for cash, and the standard line, completely untrue. The schools are swimming in money. Expenditures uh, you know, on, for students and so on, they've never been higher. So I decided to, but I didn't want to confront her. I said, tell me about your own music education. She said, oh, it was phenomenal. She was in this little town, Bradford, Pennsylvania, and the principal of the school, this dear woman, was also the music teacher, and they would have music class down in the basement, and they learned everything. And they had only a, she had only a pitch pipe. They didn't even have a piano much less the other bells and whistles. And I said, Marilyn, as I then started to call her, nothing to do with money. There's no money there. It just had to do with care and attention and, and desire. And to her credit, she said, oh, yeah. And uh, uh, some of us were, um, Helen Friedman was there. Some of us were at dinner the other night. We raised this question. You know, Victor Borga had a really big career. And so has Peter Schickley. Could they have careers today? Would people understand their jokes, their musical illusions, and so on? I wonder. Uh, finally, I'm going to say something about musical tastes and the evolution of them. I, uh, and I'm going to wax uh, pers more personal, uh, if I may. Uh, I, uh, I consider myself pretty much all-embracing. I appreciate a great many kinds of music, uh, as long as it's good. Uh, Duke Ellington used to say, if it sounds good, it is good. 
And I love something that Shostakovich said. He said, I love all of music from Bach to Offenbach. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I would, he would have to update it. And I'm, I wonder if this is true of you. I'm, uh, I'm happy to say that I'm always adding to my store of what I like and not subtracting from it, almost never subtracting from it. And I've written in the New Criterion a couple of times, I think, uh, particularly about opera, that um, the older I get, the better Verdi becomes. <laughs> and you know, he was really a smart fellow and a good composer. You know, I was a young and a pianist and so on. So what was all this um papa? And these ridiculous Italian ditties, and there's no counterpoint. I, mean, I appreciated the older works like you know Otello and Falstaff and so on. Traviata, of course, a perfect work of art. Now I really embrace all of Verdi. I mean, what a what a smart guy. You know, you wait. Things come. Things come. If you don't like or get something now, you may later. I was never a Wagnerite. Certainly never um, a, a Wagnerite for complete operas. I liked excerpts. I liked orchestral preludes and overtures. I like the big arias and ensembles, but I could never get with the whole Wagner concept. And eventually, I did. And it was completely natural and unwilled. I don't know how to tell someone to like Wagner. If you don't, you don't, and that's just fine. I don't know how I came to appreciate Wagner. But there came a time when Parsifal went by like, like a nursery rhyme. It was just, I couldn't believe it was over. And I, I raise this in particular because I've, I have, um, I'm glad now to say that I get, or at least accept, bel canto opera. I was at a performance of La Sonambula by Bellini the other night. And I realized how great Bellini is. You know, Wagner called him the sweet Sicilian. And when I was young, I, I appreciated the barber of Seville, say, who doesn't, and Lucidi Lamarmore and parts of the Italian girl in Algiers. But Belcanto seemed so stupid and stylized. And why was the music so happy and chipper when the action was so sad or, or, or even tragic? And well, what's going on? I just thought it really, really low-class music. And, uh, and uh, Ned Roram said that Beverly Sills was a smart woman who had ruined her career on dumb music, meaning Belcanto music. Well, what a dumb statement that was. Um, there came a time when I simply understood understood the taste, the style, the purpose, the classicism. So I guess if I have a message, it is um, you don't have to like everything now. You don't have to like everything ever. Uh, but it's wonderful how a receptivity will add uh, new likes. And uh, it's a, a wonderful world. I guess Louis Armstrong saying that. But it's a wonderful world, that music world out there. I'm going to glance at my watch and um, should I zip it now, Roger? And Go on. I'll, 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 I'll zip it and ask for any questions or comments or um, stem winders you may have. Thank you so much. All right. That you said uh, one that I, I this is not the occasion to expatiate on it at least uh, uh, in, in the question um, and answer uh, part of the evening, namely the Europeanization of music. I th there are many other aspects of our culture now that are undergoing um, a similar sort of push. I think there is a, there are efforts. Charles Murray talked about this in a lecture he recently gave at the American Enterprise Institute about the desire on the part of some to push the United States more toward a European model. Mm. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that. Um, I resist that 
that initiative myself. Um, and I think you would probably have a lot of very interesting things to say about that, but we'd be here very late. So I don't, don't want to want you to talk about that. But I was just about to launch in. The care for culture. And I think and that's really, and, you know, if somebody said, what is the new criterion about? That would be one way of, of, of putting it, the care for culture. Uh, and you certainly, in, in all of your writings, are, are about that care. Um, all of you here tonight, you know, you, you help us in, in various ways, and we're incredibly grateful for that. Um, the care for culture, the care for our civilization, for who we are uh, as, a, as a country, as, uh, you know, a, a people as diverse as we are. Um, you know, we're, we're incredibly grateful to you. We're, of course, incredibly grateful to, to, to Mitzi, who is my favorite Mitzi of, of all, yeah. <laughs> uh, for hosting You know, culture should be fun, it should be entertaining, it should be engrossing, it should be educational, all of these things. <coughs> but there's a real sort of seriousness underneath it all. And I think you have a, a rare talent in being able to bring all of those elements together to, you know, uh, engage the audience, but also uh, keeping us aware of that, that seriousness. And um, if I might sort of start the question and answer period, just could you say a little bit more about that care for culture? Uh, how do you see it as, as a critic? Mm -hmm. Some of the uh, assaults on it, I mean, you, you mentioned Mr. Gelb. Uh, wh what else is going on in the world of opera in New York? Any other, uh, any, any other such assaults? Or any, and are, there any, are there any bright spots? I may want to consult my notes. A <laughs> uh, couple, thing couple things about caring. I, I think people need to be exposed to high things and good things to figure out whether they like them. And if they don't like them, fine. But I think they ought to have, sort of like trying all sorts of food. Um, I believe in no thank you helpings. So you can decide what you like and, and dislike. And uh, Roger, what's that well-known, um, um, what's that well-known uh, saying from Matthew Arnold? Of the best that's the best that's been, that's been thought and said. I think people ought to be exposed to that. And if they want to reject it, or it doesn't really float their boat, that's certainly fine with me. I, I had a nice experience. Um, I'll relate two experiences, a very nice experience in the Opera House the other night. I took a friend of mine who had, had, had seen only one other opera, uh, also with, with, with me, and, um, but had never heard much classical music and hadn't seen any opera. I took her to a, a Cav Pag, that is to a Cavalleria Rusticana by Piscani <coughs> and a Pagliacci by Leon Cavallo. And I, I noticed that when the orchestra was playing the, the intermezzo from Cav, there were tears streaming down her face. And I can't tell you how much pieces like that when I was growing up were, were derided as, as you know, kitschy and silly and perfumed and, and frilly and not quite serious. It was just, um, just melodic fluff. Nonsense. Nonsense. It's a marvelous piece and it absolutely reached her. And um, it's so nice when you can observe someone discover something for the first time. And um, I remember years and years ago, I took a friend of mine, a, a guy on the golf team, I took him to a marriage of, uh, a performance of a marriage of Figaro in my hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And after the overture, he leaned over to me and said in a quite audible whisper, that was the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I thought, poor guy, it's all downhill from here. It's not, <laughs> you're never, ever going to hear any better than that. And, 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 and he was right. 
I just think before people decide they don't like something, they ought to be able just to hear it or, or, or see it. And we all used to knock, and it was knocked all through my growing up, you know, middle-brow culture, that which was middle-brow, you know, a little, you know, great books, uh, you know, on someone's shelf with the different <coughs> colors and so on. Ha, ha, ha. And the Saturday Evening Post was middle-brow. It, it, it served a great, great purpose. It, it let people know what they wanted more of. And I think that's something we may be missing now. And I have something else to say about the opera world. In fact, I've said it in the pages of the New Criteria, and I'll repeat it here. I think one of the things about discernment, certainly as a critic, is you ought to be able to know uh, a golden age when you're in it. Um, anyone can say after the fact, oh, and, and the music world's full of nostalgia. Mm -hmm. The human world's full of nostalgia, really. Um, I think this is a, a not-so-great age for, for pianists and a not-so-great age for conductors and a really miserable age for composers, uh, although it may be getting better. But I think it's a great age, indeed a golden age, for singers and will be recognized as such. I remember doing a piece on Olga Bordina about 10 years ago that was titled uh, Greatness Here and Now. She's a great singer. She's an all-time singer. At Marilyn Horne's 75th birthday gala in Carnegie Hall, there was a cavalcade of singers, one after the other. And you could see right in front of you, in almost a highlights reel, uh, this is a great age um, for singing. And so um, we have that going for us. We don't have to you know, sit at home with our, with our phonographs uh, and, and so on. There is excellence about. And I'll tell you what may be some repeating what people a lot more knowledgeable than I say, and I've come to accept it. People worry about the future of classical music. I tell you something that's going to help enormously, and that is this Asian wave. Asians, they can absolutely cannot get it. Conservatories are full of Asian students, and that's just fine. Gary Grafman called them the new Jews. All that, where he was president of the Curtis Institute, all the faculty are Jewish. All the students are Asian. And so there's, there, there, there's continuity. There's new blood. You look at orchestras. You don't hear, you don't hear this much discussed in public, but mm -hmm. I'm with my paper trail, I say anything. I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm unconfirmable for any for any post. <laughs> look at an orchestra: gray heads, white heads are Jewish, black heads are Asian. That is something good. It's an infusion. Uh, the, 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 the hunger for music in the world is still there, and there are ever new audiences and ever new uh, musicians. Uh, when I was little, uh, the Asians were all string players and pianists. Never saw one a woodwind or a brass. They played everything. Asians coming from the Far East and, and, and um, studying uh, under Americans in, uh, in, in, in the music schools and in, and in the conservatories, in singing, in the ballet, and so on. If people say that the old white European culture is, is tired and um, kind of spent, well, if it is, there are others, and, and, and the torch is picked up, and people like Grafman are very, very uh, encouraged. Uh, someone said to me, I can't remember someone interviewed for my big piece in the New Criterion about the music business, uh, about the decline in music education. I said, well, the conservatories are full to burst. But yeah, but they're all Asian. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and Zarin Mehta said, well, you know, they're, they're yeah, Jewish refugees, and, and they're, 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 there's always somebody. There, there is a, 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 a vibrancy in, in music. You can certainly see this in the chamber music world. There's a chamber music series or festival on every corner. And I always quote, I guess it was Sasha Schneider who talked about his string quartet in the old days. They were the only ones, and as he put it, the event by bus. And they don't go by bus anymore. 
and the more string quartets that you can shake a stick at. Now, some people say that this, this profusion of chamber music is harming the recital world, because people want chamber concerts more than they want recitals. My preference might be the opposite, but it's a semi-good problem to have. Okay, thank you. Any, uh, any other questions? Yeah, yeah. Who do you think are the best young singers coming up then? You may have favorites of young singers that you've seen coming to the opera world. Young, like 20s? Or, or 30s. I mean, um, it's a vague term. I think, I think Joyce Didonato will finish as a great singer. Not a great singer of now, a great singer of, of all time. And um, how bad is Isabel Leonard? Mm. Uh, not very. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I remember saying about Hilary Hahn, the violinist, when she was in her teens. She's a great violinist now. Forget mature, not promising. No, 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 now. Rather like Tiger Woods before he turned pro, before he played one round as a professional golfer. He won six straight USGA tournaments, three straight US amateurs, three straight, uh, sorry, three straight US junior tournaments, three straight US amateurs. If he never played a, a round as a pro, he would have been great. And so there are, there, there are such people. I, I wrote, I think, in the current uh, issue of the new criteria, or the March issue, because you were waiting the April issue. Right. Um, and this is, an, this is a, a, a verboten phrase, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll use it. What the heck, we're among friends. And how odd is it that two of the greatest instrumentalists are, in all the world are, and here comes the offensive phrase, girl cellists, both 25, <laughs> I think, Elisa Weilerstein and Hanan Chang. <coughs> Phenomenal musicians. Not later. No, no, no. Now. Right the second. Very good thing. Sir. Um, I was wondering, could you or would you be able to write a review of an opera uh, from your seat in one of these theaters that shows the live high-definition TV on Saturday afternoon? I'd almost. Almost. But I don't think so. Because the sound, no matter how faithful, is different. And the atmosphere is different. And yet, there are people who review television shows. There are people who review movies. I think it would be a little, just a little, illegit. Uh, you might want to write about the experience of, of being in the theater there. What is your experience? What do you think? I, I've not attended one. No, I've not attended one, but I, uh, I, 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 I will one day. You mean a, you mean a theater broadcast of an opera from the Met? Yes, live. No, I have not. Last Saturday they had Sonambula. You were talking about Del Canto, and uh, it was wonderful. I think it's a, I, I think it's a great thing. But uh, there's a question: Is it live or is it Memorex? Um, <laughs> it's a kind of approximation. Of course, recordings are a different kettle of fish as well. Are recordings true? You know. Um, the great conductor, uh, Sergio Celibidaki, said that um, listening to a recording of music was like kissing a photograph of Bridget Bardot. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's not the real thing. There, 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 there really is a barrier. Between. <laughs> I, I want, one quick thing, speaking of the opera house, and it reminds me of Peter Gell, the general manager. Um, I want to say this uh, has to do with Roger and the New Criterion and other publications I write for. It's a very important to have publications who will back you um, I learned something. I, I never knew this. I guess I'm allowed to say this. What the heck? I'll say it. I was told this. Uh, I never knew this till about uh, a month ago that the Metropolitan Opera uh, pulled its advertising uh, from the New York Sun uh, because of um, 
because of upset over my reviews. And I'm, of course, a great backer of, of, of the Met, and I think its music director, James Levine, is uh, the best conductor in the world. But I said some critical things about the administration. New York Sun was just a little paper, and these quarter-page ads meant <coughs> something in the art section. And it, but it's just, it's, it's so nice to, to write for people in publications, and there are no publications, they're, they're people, actually, to write for people who will um, stick with you if they think it's worth it. You're here. No, we missed the song, <laughs> that's for sure. Are there any new music groups as sort of the follow-ons to Speculum Music Eye that you keep your eyes out, Cygnus, or groups like any, any that would, would come particularly to your mind as worth going out of your way to take a look at when they perform? Um, groups that, 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 that play and promote new music? Yeah, you know, was the Speculum Music Eye yeah, no, the 70s, <coughs> and so now those people are all in their 60s and 70s. There, 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 there's, a greater, there's a great array, and they all have a place. But um, you see new music uh, dotting the, let's call it the mainstream music world. Mm. And um, so you don't, I don't think you need to go to a special art house situation, uh, which is, was a very positive development for, for composers. There used to be almost a feeling of, of a cult about new music that you were meeting in the catacombs or something and playing for 10 or 11 people. Mm -hmm. I guess that will always be. Uh, but plenty of new music gets heard, whether it deserves to or not. And that's, as we say in my family, that's a whole other uh, question, but um, no, I don't think of, of, of one uh, in particular. Uh, there's a group with a very, very um, catching uh, name, and that is um, Bang on a Can. And the, and, and, and the chief critic of the New York Times said, Bang on a Can is the future of music. It reminded me of one well, of my. He would, wouldn't he? <laughs> reminded me of one of my favorite stories about Reagan. He left a very contentious um, a regents meeting at the University of California, and he was leaving, and a student mob surrounded his car, and it, they wouldn't let it pass, and they were chanting, we are the future, we are the future, and Reagan quick got a legal pad and scribbled, held it up to the window, I'll sell my bonds. <laughs> there is, um, I once had a, not quite a debate, but a discussion about this with Ned Roram, the composer about um, should music be performed um, only if it has merit in someone's eyes, or should it be performed simply because it's new? Uh, does the fact that it's being new give it the right to a hearing? And he thought it's, it's being new uh, uh, gave it a right to be heard, and, and merit was too slippery a question, we'll decide later. And uh, so I, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Uh, my complaint about the new music, and we don't really have time for this, but the music, new music world generally is there's not enough diversity in it. Uh, there are there are um, you know, a few standard pieces, types of pieces. I once listed them. There's the perpetual motion piece that's you know busy, 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 and then there is the sort of nuclear landscape piece that's bleak and all, and, and it's kind of like a sci-fi soundtrack. And there are the, the spooky sounds in the jungle. That that piece, and, and there's what I call. Um, um, Hildegard chic or neo-medievalism and I, I, uh, I'll tell you a couple of things I, I once heard a, a world premiere of something by Esoteca Solomon never been performed and I turned to the critic next to me and said I'm so sick of that piece and he threw, and he, and he threw back his head and laughed because he knew I meant the, the type and the other line I use not to do the obnoxious thing of quoting oneself but they, said, they say that all Vivaldi concertos sound alike 
It, it's not true, but at least they have the excuse of having been written by the same person. As in other areas of life, there is a certain... Herd instinct or herd mentality. There's groupthink in composition. People very, very reluctant to depart from the herd. I remember Lee Hoybys once telling me that every time he wrote a major third, he felt the hot breath of the composition <laughs> on, on, on his neck. And I understand that this is loosening now. That you can sort of um, remember we said in the seventies, hey, it got to be me, you know. And, and there's a kind of loosening, uh, but there is still. And I've, I've talked to a composer recently about this. A composer named Kevin Putz. There, there's a, a marked bias in, in musical circles against those who write tonally, melodically, and so on, as kind of, as as kind of cheap people and backward-looking people. And and I'm, I'm, this bias seems to be lessening, and that's uh, that that's to the good. Uh, Ned Roram once referred to the um, to the to the serialists whose dogma and orthodoxy dominated music as the serial killers. <laughs> and there was and there was there, there was something to that. That's a long way from what you asked. One more question, yes. Jay, isn't it true that so much so-called modern classical music is simply unsuccessful? There'll be a premiere, and then it seems to go into the wastebasket. A lot of it just is unsuccessful. Yeah, well, that, that's, that, that's been true in, in, in every era. I, wonder if it's, I really wonder if it was so true in the era of, let's say, early 19th century. I, 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 I think probably. Uh, I, most things are, are humdrum and, and conventional and, and, and ordinary mm -hmm. and sort of forgettable. And they have a hearing and then they go away. Mm -hmm. And the good stuff sticks. That's the, um, it, 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 it's the test mm -hmm. of time. Of course, there are works that are wrongly neglected. Uh, but there is a kind of... Um, there, there, there's, a, there's a special pleading uh, for, for new music today. A kind of, you might even call it a kind of affirmative action. Uh, they make space for it just because it's new. And you can argue that. I, I, I might argue that. Um, I think a piece of music at least has to be passable um, uh, before, before being, being programmed. It, it all 